Well, good evening. It is a pleasure to be welcomed into your pulpit again to help to lead the worship and bring God's word to you today. I am Troy Skinner, the pastor of Household of Faith in Christ in Frederick, and also host of the Faith Debate radio program that airs on WFMD. Nineteen years now, I began the show in utero. So, <laughs> last time I was here, the plan was I would be here just a couple of weeks later, but then I got sick. So hopefully you guys were able to scramble and, and make that work. I apologize. Uh, I got the worst summertime cold of my lifetime. It took me about 10 days to, to recover. It was a nasty, nasty kind of a cold. So um, anyway, so hopefully it all worked out. So I uh, shared a message that was kind of a two-parter last time, and now instead of a couple of weeks going by, a couple of months have gone by, but most of the faces I'm seeing, I think, were here last time, so I think it'll all come back to us well enough. But to help us with uh, one of the points we made in the sermon, I'm actually going to open, before we uh, stand to sing our first uh, worship song together, a portion of God's Word in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the first 13 verses. They say, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come so if you think you are standing firm be careful that you don't fall no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So he is a just God, a righteous God, but he is a faithful God. And that is the God that we sing praises to. So all who are able, if you would stand and sing our first hymn, it's 284. We have an anchor, hymn number 284.
Everyone may be seated. Well, it's time for announcements. Usually there's somebody who's been designated to update us on what's going on in the life of Fairview Chapel, upcoming speakers and things like that. I don't know if anybody has any of that information handy today. Anybody been given that assignment? It's in my car. It's in your car? You didn't commit it to memory? <laughs> Sixty-three. Yeah. Wow. Hello. Hi. Are you fishing for compliments? Because you look good for sixty-three. Oh, I gotta thank say. You. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I, I guess. Uh, next week. Next week. Patty Robinson. Patty. That's right. The following week, Patrick Gray and Joe. Oh, okay. And the week after that, would be Pastor Jeff Daniels. You're pretty good. Thank you, Bill. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Was it Jeff Childs? Was it Childs? Childs. And you know what? We weren't sure who that was, but yeah. now we know. Who was it? He is the new pastor at Mount Carmel. Oh. Okay. And what's really funny is I went to Mount Carmel on went, uh, uh, one day last week. WGTS was having a sticker oh, stop in Frederick, and they said, I'm out of Mount Carmel. It's nice to make new friends in Christ, isn't it? Yeah. So, all right. Well, um, we opened with reading 13 verses from the New Testament. Actually, now during I'm going to steal some announcement time for announcement from God's Word and read another 13 verses this time from the Old Testament. Again, it's going to help. And if you want to read along, you can. It's Numbers chapter 20. We're reading the first 13 verses, and I'm reading this because it's directly connected to the sermon. It'll be helpful to refresh our memories of what is said here. So, God's Word says. In Numbers 20, picking up with chapter 1, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grape vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. 
These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. This was the reading of God's word. So was what we read at the start. And so, too, will be what we read during the sermon. I just will remind us all it is God's word. The Greek word there is theonostos. It's God breathed. It's written by men as carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it is inerrant. It is infallible. And it is sufficient. Fully so. Fully sufficient as the rule and guide for our faith, what we believe, and for our life practice, what we do. So I encourage all to receive it as such and that those with ears would hear. So we've reached the time for the uh, uh, free will offerings to help support the ministry here at uh, Fairview Chapel. So I imagine there's an usher who's expecting to come and, and pass the offering plate around. I think we'll have some musical, musical accompany while that happens. After the offering's taken up, we will uh, sing the doxology uh, together. opportunity now to worship you by giving back to you just a small portion of what you've given us. You bless us so much. We're so grateful. And we ask that you would fill those who have to make decisions on how this money is used. You would fill them with wisdom and, and discernment and good stewardship and that in all things that happens here with Fairview Chapel that your name would be magnified and glorified. We ask your blessing upon these monies and upon the people who have uh, gathered here together and have shared uh, part of what they have to uh, advance what happens with the ministry here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. And I got to say, I lasted a little longer with my jacket than I anticipated. <laughs> it's a warm one. And for, forgive me, but I'm anticipating the tie will be going next. <laughs> So now we've reached the, the time in our, our gathering together for the prayers of the people. Uh, assuming that Teresa is again going to be comfortable opening us with a word of prayer. Uh, I assume you are. She will, uh, she will open us with a word of prayer and then in turn, one at a time, please, everyone who feels led uh, to pray aloud uh, will in turn pray aloud, praying praises and thanksgivings and, and praying about needs that we have uh, as well. And when it seems... To me that everyone who's going to be praying aloud tonight has, then I will close us 
and prayer before we then have our next hymn, which if you want to be thinking ahead, it's hymn number 328. In times like these, we're praying about the times of which we live, right? Times like these. So if you would get us started, I'd appreciate that. God-ordained meeting, and 
I just I pray for her that she continues to be bold in her walk and witnessing. I just thought that was awesome, especially what I just went through. And it was, you know, a recognition that to me God was with me, even though I wasn't, I didn't feel scared. I just knew He was there, but it was total recognition that I got your back. So I just wanted to tell you guys that I thought it was pretty awesome. That's my patience. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy and for your many blessings, Lord. Yes. Lord, we thank you for sending your only begotten Son to save your people. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being obedient to your Father. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Heavenly Father. Father, continue to pray for my wife and heal her. I ask and pray all in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen. Yes, Jesus, be the family. Praise for the Stanley Martin family, Wanda Henry, and Kathy Walker for help. Thank you. 
Father God, you are Lord Most High, and we praise you and we honor your name. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your creation, and most specifically in your word, in your word incarnate, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reminder this evening that sometimes our prayers come with an air of formality, and sometimes our prayers come with the tone of a casual conversation. Mm -hmm. We thank you, Lord, that we can commune with you, and we should commune with you without ceasing each and every day. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We ask by the power of your spirit, you help us to, to enter into and walk in that love, to walk in obedience, to walk in assurance, to walk filled with joy, learning contentment along the way, working out our salvation with fear and trembling as we advance in our sanctification, demonstrating growth in the fruit of the Spirit. We have so many concerns that we pray about. So often, the plight within this world, God, we ask that you would move within the hearts and minds of those who are in leadership positions, whether it be the business world, or government spheres, heads of households, leaders within your church. We thank you for the reminders that you are a God who is active in our lives by bringing moments of healing, bringing times of encouragement where we are blessed in ways that we cannot deny or because of your hand at work. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather like we are this evening to worship you as one body 
seeking to be iron, sharpening iron, to edify one another mutually, to learn more about you so we can worship you better and serve your kingdom all the more. We ask that you would give us attentive ears, clear our minds from distractions, to hear your word here shortly. And that when we sing, we would sing from our heart. It would make a joyful noise. For you are worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our next hymn is hymn number 328. 328 in times like these.
Well, I don't know that it's one that always gets called out in a hymn sing, but it's it's a goodie, right? So the last time I was here, you might remember, because I think everybody was here last time, we admitted that we all grumble sometimes. We grumble about people, we grumble about life, and we grumble about God. And we turn to a story about Jesus that we find in Exodus chapter 17 to find an ancient example of God's people grumbling. And we can say that this is a story about Jesus because we learn how Jesus is the main character in all of Exodus. In fact, Exodus is a book that is sort of in the gospel genre because some really smart people define a gospel as a book that centers on a divine covenant while centering on the career and teaching of the covenant mediator. And that's what we have going on in Exodus. That's what we have going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we see corollaries between Moses in Exodus and Christ in the New Testament. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we see the overlap of two trials. God putting his people to the test and his people putting God to the test. By attempting to impeach God, the people prove that they have failed God's testing. And this was nothing new. They had grumbled pretty much from the start since the time they were rescued from Egypt. And really, it's nothing quite so old either as we do the same thing today. And so too did the disciples in the first century. The people think that they can throw together a sham trial, that they can convict God. But he turns the tables. The Israelites in the desert, they were living through a time of hard teaching, hard testing. And we can relate, can't we? We feel hard testing, sometimes the hardness of God's teaching in our life at times. Well, they began to doubt God's provision way back then, and I think we might be a little familiar with that idea in our lives as well. And so God reminded his people that he is the provider of eternal life. He reminded them by sparing their lives, by accepting upon himself their punishment. It's ironic because Jesus, he passes his test in the wilderness where the Israelites, they fail their test in the wilderness. So we're going to pick up this time where we left off last time in Exodus chapter 17. Let me grab my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same and read along. I don't really care much which translation you're reading from, but just so you know, I'll be reading from the NIV. Picking up with verse 1, the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17, God's word says to us, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, 
Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa at Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Thus ends the reading of God's word. In Exodus chapter 17 and throughout all of redemptive history, we see a reversing of God's testing. The people have failed to pass the test. And so God, he intervenes himself as the ultimate covenant mediator. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God passes the test for us. Hallelujah. His love is thus proven. But his justice, it must always be upheld because he is a righteous God. And so he executes judgment on this very same Jesus, who is himself God, and who is representatively present as the punishment bearer in Exodus chapter 17. Jesus is visible in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, in several ways. Especially when we take the time to detail the responses of Moses and of God in this situation. In verse 4, Moses, he cries out, he prays to God, fearful that the people are about to execute him. In the New Testament, Jesus, he battles these same sorts of fears. He cries out to God, he prays to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both men, they faced an unrighteous penal act. One, death by stoning. The other, death by crucifixion. Both the covenant mediator representative, Moses, and the covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, they find themselves woven into a a narrative with a forensic theme, a legal theme. Both men, they are wrongfully charged by the people. And both of them cry out to God. And yet Moses is spared as God intervenes on behalf of the people. While Jesus is sacrificed as God intervenes on behalf of the people. In Exodus 17, God tells Moses to pass before the people, to go before the presence of the elders, to use the rod of judgment, to strike the rock upon which God was standing. With Christ, it is God himself who passes before the people during the triumphal entry and on the road to Golgotha. With Christ, it is God himself who goes before the presence of the elders in an almost secret session of the Sanhedrin and then later before the crowds shouting, crucify him. With Christ, it is God himself who takes the strike of the whip and the blows of the nails hammered into the cross beams after first passing through his body. In both situations, Separated by more than a millennium, God allows the staff of his judgment to be wielded against his son, who is also God himself. He not only allows it, but he actually calls about the circumstances that brought it about. Because, I mean, from before time, God, he foreordained that he would save his people through the sacrifice of his son. And in Exodus 17, we note that it is God who 
called this court scene together. Moses, he feared being stoned, likely, perhaps, without anyway, without the benefit of receiving a proper trial. But as we've said, the people, they're the ones who should have been on trial. Yet, it's God who orchestrated the court scene, almost appearing to stand trial himself, almost appearing to concede to the myopic self-centeredness of the people. And he takes the punishment that's due the people, suffering the blow upon the rock. Now, readers of the NIV, again, that's the translation I was reading tonight, can have the power of this moment somewhat obscured from our view, just a little bit anyway. The NIV, it translates the start of verse 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb. Opting for by the rock. It's unfortunate, but it's not strictly wrong. There are lots of other translations that follow the NIV here, uh, opting for the preposition by. That's an acceptable rendering, taking it from Greek into English. However, the English equivalent upon, that is the overwhelmingly most common way that we translate into English the Hebrew preposition all. Now, this isn't a totally fatal flaw for the NIV or the translations like it. One can still see that it is Christ receiving the blow because he is the rock, as we just sang and as we read earlier when we were reading from the first letter to the Corinthians at the start of our worship time today. However, some important nuance is lost when we opt for by the rock in lieu of upon the rock. Now, consider the the title, Christ or Messiah, these, these titles are commonly used in the context of Jesus in his humanity. Right? It's the incarnate God that's usually considered when we use these titles. Now, certainly he is both God and man, and he suffers the blow as both God and man. However, this point is illustrated so much more vividly when we consider that God is standing upon the rock with Christ also being the very rock itself. Because you see, when the gavel of justice hammers down, God takes the blow in his deity and in the Son's humanity. Not only is Christ struck as the rock, but figuratively speaking, God is struck down as the one standing upon the rock. This all amplifies the truth that God absorbs the punishment that is due his people. After which he gives them water for life. Living waters. Coming to fully appreciate what happens in Exodus chapter 17. It's, I would argue, crucial (laughs) to truly fully understand the depth of Moses' sin in Numbers chapter 20, which we read I don't know, 20 minutes ago. The two passages, they almost leave the impression of being parallel, that they're describing the exact same thing, the exact same moment in time, given their striking similarities. But while those similarities are many, the differences are noteworthy. In both narratives, the thirsty people of Israel bring a complaint against Moses. And by extension, they're bringing a complaint against God. 
In Numbers chapter 20, God, he again sends Moses before the assembly with the staff of judgment in his hand and once again water pours forth from the rock. However, the narrative in Numbers chapter 20 features a different articulation of the complaints, a significant difference in the prominence of his, Moses' brother Aaron, and the absence of God saying that he would stand upon the rock. And the most significant difference is God's specific instruction to Moses. Whereas in Exodus chapter 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, God tells Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses fails to speak to the rock. Instead, he speaks to the people. And he strikes the rock. (laughs) And what's more, he strikes the rock not just once, but twice. Now, keeping in mind that the New Testament reveals that striking the rock in Exodus chapter 17 is the striking of Christ in sacrifice for God's people. It's as if Moses is re-sacrificing God's son in Numbers chapter 20. I mean, the theological and soteriological implications are enormous when we consider the book of Hebrews. It teaches that the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ was once for all. And actually, it seems very probable the writer of Hebrews, he he wants to call our mind to these very moments that are recorded in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Because the book of Hebrews, it makes quite a show making the point of comparing and contrasting Moses with Jesus. And the rebellion in the wilderness following the exodus from Egypt, it is central, truly central to the Hebrew author's thinking when it's drawing attention to what some theologians, the technical speak types of theologians, like to call the Moses-Jesus type anti-type. Quoting from chapter 3 of Hebrews, if you'd like to read along, you can. I'm going to pick up with verse 2. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, God says. Though for 40 years they saw what they did. That is why I was angry with that generation I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? 
Now, while Jesus is clearly positioned as the greater of the two, there's no doubt that Moses, he is seen in the New Testament as a precursor, a forerunner of Christ. And again, I've already pointed out some of these similarities between Moses and Jesus, along with some important distinctives, which show that Jesus is the perfect antitype, while Moses is the imperfect type. We talked about how Moses, he cried out in prayer to God, resulting in the death penalty being turned away from Moses. Whereas Jesus, he cried out in prayer to God, but the death penalty came anyway. Moses, he went before the people and the elders, which led to his righteous vindication. Whereas Jesus, he went before the people and the elders, which led to his unrighteous conviction. Additional points of foreshadowing, they include having a thirsty and hungry people, which included Moses, given water and food in the wilderness despite their rebellion. Whereas a thirsty Jesus in his righteousness, he's given vinegar to drink moments before he was struck down on the cross. And a hungry Jesus in the wilderness, he said no to turning the stones into bread. Themes of thirst and and provision, they're clearly present here. And whether we realize it or not, what God's people truly thirst for is God's loving kindness in rescuing them from the consequences of their own covenant unfaithfulness. Because we're all unfaithful. And the provision God's people receive is one of justice that is delivered in such a way as to deliver life to them. It's astounding. As a quick aside, prayer is a big part of the the story here of this moment in history. Note that the people, they didn't go directly to God with their complaints, did they? They But Moses did. So Moses, he illustrates what a trusting Christian is to do in our hour of trial. We are to turn to the Lord, ask for guidance. And Moses, he faced an unlawful trial with respect to his claims of having been sent by God, having acted on God's behalf. You know, it's a trial that's not unlike the trial of Jesus. We've already kind of alluded to this. It'll come many centuries later, but... Both men, they respond to their trials with an attitude of prayer. Oh, how God's people today would have an attitude of prayer. Well, now we head down the home stretch. So again, just for emphasis, let's recap here. Exodus 17, the first part of the chapter, presents a story that's from history. God's people put God on trial. See, God has been testing his people. He's been testing in this narrative we're focusing on today to see if the people would remain faithful or if they would turn against him. And in bringing their charges against God, well, (laughs) and bringing their charges against God's covenant mediator, Moses, they proved to be unfaithful. And so the people, they got what they wanted. They, they, They got a trial. However, it was God who convened court, not the people. And it was the people who ended up standing trial, not God. And yet it was God who received the penalty that was due for the guilty verdict, not the sinful people. See, God, he's a God of love and justice and both of these aspects of who he is are on full display as God is vindicated. And Moses as a covenant mediator, although a flawed one, 
He stands as an example of the one true covenant mediator, Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, people of Israel, they become a negative example for the ages, don't they? See, at first, the people, they seem to be making a challenge against Moses. But they are, in fact, proving to be making a challenge against God. So people, they demonstrate, when you really ponder what's going on here, at a nearly unbelievable level of disbelief. But Moses and God are vindicated. In the process, the people are blessed. Despite themselves. As God provides water for life. Here are some words written by a great theologian, A.W. Pink. It was not when Israel were bowed in worship before the Lord. It was not when they were praising him for all his abundant mercies toward them. No such happy scene do the opening verses of Exodus 17 present to our view. The very reverse is what is there described. Israel were murmuring. They were almost ready to stone God's servant. They were filled with unbelief saying, is the Lord among us or not? The giving of the water then was God acting according to his marvelous grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But be it well noted, it was grace acting on a righteous basis. Not till the rock was smitten did the waters flow forth. And not till the Savior had been bruised by God was the gospel of his grace sent forth to every creature. What, my reader, is the response of your heart to this amazing and rich mercy of God? Surely, you say, out of deepest gratitude, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Here's what I want you to most remember and the lessons that you'll hopefully apply to your lives. This story that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 17, it, it helps to drive home just who is the unifying thread through all of redemptive history. It's Jesus Christ. And you know, in this passage, the illustrations, you know, pastors love to include illustrations in their sermons. And boy, I mean, they're just, they're almost obvious. Because the people in the pews... And the one preaching <laughs> are the grumbling Israelites. Sometimes it's grumbling. We might try to pass it off as mere murmuring and try to say it's not that big of a deal. But there are other times that it does unambiguously rise to the level of even bringing accusations against God himself. Where are you, God? How'd you let that happen, God? What's going on, God? I'm mad at you, God. But these complaints are not even always brought directly to God in prayer, are they? But instead, too often, they take the form of complaints about God to others. And Christians might even sometimes demonstrate a blame of God by blaming faithful, Christ-exalting, biblically honorers of God the Father, church leaders, Blaming them. You know, Moses, he's a representative of Christ, remember. So, griping against him is griping against God. However, the Christian people are also Moses. 
Christians are representatives of Christ to a lost and fallen world. So we get to play the Moses role on the good side of things. Like Moses, believers must seek God in prayer. And we must obey God, which Moses actually does in Exodus chapter 17. And following Moses' lead, Christ's followers must also remember that they are guilty, at least sometimes, of covenant unfaithfulness for failing to consistently follow God. But we should remember that God has absorbed the death blow. He has absorbed the death blow on behalf of his people. And in the process, he has given his people eternal life because believers in Christ are rescued. And not because they're innocent, (laughs) but because God has stepped into history and has saved them. And he did so in the person, through the work of this person, Jesus Christ, who became sin for his people, as we see in the gospel narratives. He is seen mediating in this very same way in Exodus chapter 17, where the people are found guilty in the trial and God does execute justice. Only his justice is enforced against himself. You see, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the very same God. This one true God has been ever faithful. So faithful to his plan for redeeming his people. And this plan has been the same plan since the beginning of time. And humble gratitude and exceeding joy and voluntary obedience. These are the only responses that make any sense at all. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us, even though we do not deserve it. You have called us and are making us to be a people who would seek your face in prayer, who would minister to those around us, who would grow in our obedience, who would seek to magnify your name. And we thank you by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we can, every time we open the pages of the good book, that we can... Gain a new insight. Add to the depth of our understanding or knowledge of the truth of who you are, what you're doing in this world, how you're working in our lives individually and as a group. We praise you and thank you that you have preserved this word for us all these years. And boy, we have an embarrassment of of riches when it comes to English translations, which sometimes can aid us in understanding um, and pointing us to what the original words had to say. Had to say then and have to say for us even today. We ask that you would help us to internalize the message and that we would live out your words. That we would be a faithful people. That we would love not only you, but we would love our neighbor. Following the example of Christ in in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let's uh, stand and sing our final hymn of the evening, number 527. 527, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. Hopefully you all have pen lights or something because it's gotten dark.
standing. Uh, the benediction is a really simple one. My, my heart, my prayer for you is that as you, as you leave here this evening, that you are reinvigorated to do the good work and sometimes the hard work of sharing the good news with a lost generation that so needs it. May God bless you as you leave this sanctuary this evening and enter the mission field that is all around us. Let's uh, sing our final uh, set of hallelujahs. Hallelujah.